Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Ho, 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 Seattle, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, Advanced Sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and, uh, well, your Baron of Brewskis. Um, hope you're having a great weekend. It's Saturday night in Seattle, and I hope you've got something great in your glass. It is the holiday season. If you're looking for great holiday gifts, um, I've got a great segment at the end of the show today, talking about some wonderful books and some games, and, of course, some lively spirits and wines to, to partake, to give, and share with your friends and family, and uh, celebrate the season. Um, I am super, super, super. Uh, excited about today's guest. This is an international superstar in the, in the world of wine. Her name is Karen McNeil. She is uh, an author, um, I should say an evangelist, but that would be, a, we call grape a religion or a wine religion, but she's uh, joining me on air. She's down in San Francisco tonight, and I want to say, um, Karen McNeil, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you tonight. Uh, I'm I'm pleased and honored to have you here. Um, the Wine Bible uh, for the, our listeners is uh, is a must read um, if you're trying to learn about wine and and uh, just getting started. Uh, you want to pick up uh, Kevin's Raley's Windows uh, to the World and Wine, and of course the Wine Bible. These were two of my first books I ever got. And um, Karen, uh, the author of the Wine Bible, and now the second edition, tell me about um, how you fell in love with wine. Yeah, you know, it is so interesting, uh, Chris, because I think wine sort of chooses us. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds funny to say, but um, I I loved wine even from the time I was sort of like 15 years old. I did not have um, any family members who drank wine. My parents didn't drink wine. So there was really no logical reason for me um, to to love it, but I just did, and I loved everything about it. I, I started out drinking, you know, eighty nine cent Bulgarian reds, but <laughs> I, you know, I I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't snobbish about what I drank. I just I loved the flavor. I loved the, in a sense, the culture of wine drinking. Was that at fifteen years old? Were you uh, at fifteen years old? Yeah, fake yep. ID. Oh, so fun. Well, I'm wondering if the the name McNeil is Scottish. Perhaps you were drinking Scotch early on. Yes, it is Scottish, and um, I, I wish I knew as much about single malt Scotch as I do about wine. Uh, maybe that's the, the the Scotch Bible coming up next. Oh, well, I'm sure the world would uh, greet that with great anticipation. Um, so it's interesting. Where did you grow up? Uh, I spent most of my adult life in New York City, but I was born in Boston. Ah, well, you got you got the Irish in Boston, but the New York City, of course, uh, the wealth of uh, international melting pot for America. And uh, interesting, you said Bulgarian wines because that is pretty close to the birthplace of wine, isn't it? Uh, yes, not too far away. Um, we think that the sort of the you know, the important triangle for wine's origins is what is today uh, the triangle created by Eastern Turkey, um, 
Iraq and the Republic of Georgia. Georgia, um, yes. Possibly uh, right, uh, Azerbaijan as as well. But it's along the old Tigris and Euphrates River, which, you know, we all studied in the fourth grade. (laughs) (laughs) We did. That was uh, um, compulsory. Yes. Um, so in New York, um, were you uh, studying? Uh, what was you went to college? I assume, or you had some some uh, yes. post uh, some yes. graduate work. Were you uh, into history? Were you into journalism? What was your your passion in college? Uh, I was an English language and literature major. That's what my degree is in. Although interestingly enough, I've never taken a writing course. Um, I also sort of fell in love as a as a young teenager with uh, with writing, and so um, it was. Um, I, I began uh, early on trying to get published, and um, it's it's interesting all these years later to spend so much of my time writing since I I never actually took a course in that. Wow. Well, did you? Uh, when was the first time you actually wrote about wine? You know, it's very, uh, well, w- let me say that when I started in New York in the 1970s, it wasn't like today. Today, the, 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 uh, the atmosphere is very open, and people feel really comfortable sharing either on their blog or on, on Facebook or through an app like, let's say, Vivino or whatever. To, they feel very comfortable sharing um, their opinion on a wine. But in the 1970s, no one wrote about wine except for the few people who were considered real experts in it. And those few people were um, five men uh, who controlled all of the wine writing across (laughs) the United States. Wow. Um, And there was no breaking into that world um, because they had every magazine, in a sense, sewed up. And... um, there was no way really to write about wine. Um, I mean, I ultimately did get a, a sort of lucky break eight years um, after starting to taste with, with these men, um, but it was very unusual to, to be able to do that. Who were some of those godfathers of wine, if you will, the wine journalism at the time? Yeah, two of the uh, most, uh, well, the th- three most important were Frank Pryle, the late Frank Pryle of the New York Times, the late Alex Bespaloff, who wrote for New York Magazine and was considered uh, a, a superb expert, and Howard Goldberg, um, also of the New York Times, who uh, is still uh, living and and still writing, for that matter. Um, and... You know, these the these men would taste multiple times a week, and producers from all over the world, from you know Port today, Chianti tomorrow, would fly in and hold tastings just for them. And I, luckily, one of one of these men, um, on the pretext of sort of my being kind of like his younger sister. Um, let me come with him and ask the group if it would be all right if I tasted with them. And so for the next eight years, I tasted with them on the, on the agreement, on the unspoken agreement, that I would say nothing. <laughs> that I would offer no thoughts, no opinions, and be, you know, in effect, a, a kind of a fly on the wall. But they did let me taste. And I'm forever grateful because I was able, as a young woman, to taste many of the world's greatest wines. 
Of course, I couldn't figure out anything. I was desperate to ask them, why is red wine red? Yes. But um, in a sense, the, uh, the inability to ask a question um, caused me to figure out wine on my own, caused me to be self-taught, and it really laid the groundwork for, for the Wine Bible, because the Wine Bible was the book I wished I had had when I was learning about wine. Oh, I have the pleasure of speaking with Karen McNeil, who is the author of the Wine Bible. When did the first edition, when was that first edition released? First edition came out in 2001. It took 10 years of research. Um, I do all primary research, so, you know, I'm not uh, looking at anything any other journalist says. And, um, you know, it takes a long time to write a, a book that global and that big. Although the second edition, which just came out um, a few weeks ago, uh, only took four years. So I'm, <laughs> I'm two and a half times as fast as I used to be. Is that because we have spell check and all of that? And I imagine and working back then in the, the 1990s, it was still uh, the uh, electric typewriter and, and how you took notes, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, we, uh, the, I think the part of the reason I'm twice as fast is that the Internet has, has become a valid source of information. I mean, let me let me explain that because in in 2001, in the late 1990s and even as of 2001, um, while the internet certainly existed, publishers did not consider anything on the internet to be a valid source of a fact. Ah, Isn't right. that fascinating? Kind of graffiti so, at the time. Yes. So I remember at one point I had a, uh, you know, I was writing something about Ridge, and I had an interview that I had done with Paul Draper, you know, my handwritten notes. And then I noticed that the Ridge website said something entirely different. And the publisher said, oh, no, 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 we, d we don't even care about the website. We want whatever you, whatever he said in your interview is the correct fact. Um, now, of course, websites and the Internet are considered a valid source of information. So that speeds up research considerably. Oh, I can imagine. And uh, to think of how many handwritten notes you had to write to, to, to put together the first tome, the first wine Bible. Um, when you think about a project like that, did you come up with the name first? I'm an idea guy, and I always like to come up with the name of the idea and then kind of figure out how to put it together. Yeah, no. Um, in fact, all of that, those years of writing the first wine Bible, um, it was called something different. And when I brought the manuscript in 10 years later, Peter Workman, um, who owns Workman Publishing, looked at it for a few minutes. He was very quiet, and he said, Oh, my God, it's the wine Bible. <laughs> and that's what and that's what we'll call it. And I said, absolutely not, Peter. We can't call it the Wine Bible. Blasphemy. That's way too big of a statement. Wow. And and he said, this is so interesting. He said, well, apparently you haven't really read your contract because if you had read your contract, you would know that you, as the author, don't get a vote <laughs> on the title of your book because you're. You're the author. You're a subject expert. So everything inside the book is up to you. 
but we are marketing experts, and uh. the title is considered part of a book's marketing. Um, and so I was horrified, right? <laughs> yes. I said, listen, I've trusted you that everything on the inside is really good, and now it's your turn to trust me. We're going to call it the Wine Bible. How exciting. And I wonder, did you have to add a little uh, segment in Sacramental Wine? Uh, no, it was already in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. And uh, the kosher wines and things like that. Well, how fun. I speak. I have the pleasure of speaking with Karen McNeil, who is the author of The Wine Bible, and now The Wine Bible Second Edition, which is out um, available right now on in all the great wine books, uh, wine shops, and, of course, online at Amazon, which is based here in Seattle, of course. Uh, I had the pleasure of having um, an edition here, and I've uh, just vacationed in Mexico enjoying the, this style of writing. You've got a great um, loquaciousness, which which is, is factual, but it's entertaining. Thank you. You know, I, I believe that um, wine writing should be uh, good on wine and, and really good writing at the same time. Um, and there are, there are a lot of writers who really know their wine, but who I would, I would say are perhaps not um, particularly great writers. Um, and there are great writers who uh, don't know a lot about wine, but sort of write about it anyway. But uh, these two areas are two areas that I've worked really hard to try to be good at and still work hard every day to try to be good at. So I'm always so pleased when people say they just love to read the Wine Bible, that it's really fun to read. Yeah, and, and also, to be honest, the size of the book, it's very, it's comfortable. It's, it's, it's easy to use. It's not the big, I mean, I love Hugh Johnson and Jancis Robinson. And those, those tomes, you can't really put that on a plane and sort of like, you know, you need, to, you need four by four feet of area to read those books and enjoy them. <laughs> exactly. You know, but it's funny because I see people on, the pla- on planes reading the Wine Bible all the time. I see it, you know, spaghetti stained sitting on the kitchen counter <laughs> in people's trunks. My favorite, though, is someone sent me a picture the other day of the wine Bible sitting on his bathtub and uh, and uh, with the bath completely drawn, <laughs> and uh, and there it was. So I love that. Soap and the wine Bible. That was so fun. Well, um, when we come back from this break, we're going to chat more with Karen McNeil and about all the goodness that is in, lo- in the second edition of the wine Bible. So, folks, stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Brian Cisneros with the Northwest Chocolate Festival, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KBI. Only one station has Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. on Talk Radio 570 KBI. It's KBI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. All right. Uh, happy Saturday night. It's time for round two. I hope you have something great in your glass. And I've got the pleasure of uh, having, uh, well, the award-winning author and um, uh, speaker and consultant Karen McNeil on the show today. She's down in San Francisco this evening. And uh, Karen, we were just chatting about um, how pleasant it is to have a uh, what we'll call a, a perfect resource of wine to carry along and that uh, is, is easy to use and easy to read at any place, whether it is on the plane or in the bathtub. Yes, yes, it's, uh, you know, the Wine Bible, above all, is meant as a book to be used, and so um, 
I am really happy that and people send us all the time photos of, uh, you know, completely um, uh, tattered up, torn pages, underlined, post-it covered wine Bibles. And I love every one of them. And mine is filled with highlight markers and, of course, uh, uh, worn edges and torn pages as well. And and little, uh, what do you call the bunny flaps to to keep my place. The Wine Bible is truly one of the books you have to start out with because uh, it's it's technical in a way that is more... um, uh, it, it's I don't call it elementary, but it certainly has a a welcoming um, an approachability to the facts. It's not speaking down. I think you're really speaking up. Yeah, you know, I um, again when I was starting out, um, most of the wine books sort of had a tone that was straight out of the British school system in the 1950s. <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was not only hard to understand those books. And and it, it would be infuriating to me because I would feel like, you know, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. Why is the writer making this so obtuse? Um, and I sort of vowed that if I ever knew wine well enough to write about it myself, I would never write about it in that way. Um, I would write uh, I would write about it as as a as a teacher and as a person who is just telling another intelligent person sort of how the wine world works um, with humor and uh, and with everything um, that surrounds wine culture art gastronomy all those things added in and after all um, I have the pleasure of knowing uh, Alex Galitzin here of Col Cedar Creek Vintners in in Washington State and and we were talking about genius and people talked about how great wine was and he goes my god a computer is genius this is just fermented grape juice so after it's great to hear that we can talk about it in a way that it, it it's about family and, and shoot it's something that's been around for 8,000 years right yes um, yes wine is of course one of the the great historic beverages of of the world, along with tea, coffee, and beer. I mean, those are the four big beverages that have sort of sustained evolution, if you will. <laughs> I wonder if Zima will ever actually have his millisecond in that history. <laughs> mm. um, well, when it comes to writing a book, tell me, how did you actually plan your your attack to, uh, in the whole wine world? I mean, you wanted to conquer this world of wine. Did you start in uh, Finger Lakes in New York, or did you actually find your, your following, your calling in a, an area of where you were drawn to? Yeah, I mean, I've visited every uh, wine region in the world with the, with the exception of the Balkans. I actually have not been to the Balkans yet. Um, but, uh, and so... Traveling has been, um, you know, I didn't start in France and then move my way out in concentric circles. I've kind of darted here and there all over the world for years and years. And when I when I was writing the second edition, I also did not write it sequentially. I I wrote Oregon first, actually, hmm. um, and I wrote uh, Italy last. Um, and I wrote Oregon first because I thought it would be uh, an easy, fun chapter. And little did I know that Oregon has gotten unbelievably great in the last few years. Yes. So that became a bigger and more complex chapter. 
And, um, you know, I would kind of vacillate between um, hard chapters and easy chapters, hard chapters and easy chapters. Uh, and um, when you looked at writing the second edition, did you read the wine, the first edition and go, okay, here's where I need to concentrate on? Or did you take the approach that I'm going to go look at everything again and update it? Yeah, I, you know, there's no one way to do a second edition. Um, authors can decide for themselves how to do it. For me, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to just put new furniture in the house. I'm going to take the house straight down to the framework and uh. rebuild the whole house. So um, I rewrote every chapter. I did all new research and certainly all new maps, photos, side boxes, glossaries, um, besides all new, um, you know, whole new areas like China and Mexico and India and Slovenia and yeah, it was uh, it was a complete massive rework. That's kind of like King James Second Edition of the Bible, right? <laughs> yeah, the Bible's been rewritten, and uh, of course, the Second Edition is now available at Amazon.com, and of course, your your um, your great bookstores wherever you are in the Pacific Northwest. But uh, uh, being an online community here, of course, it's easy to click. Uh, do you and have a- also Chris from me? If people want signed editions for uh, uh, for holiday gifts, they can go to KarenMcNeil.com. Perfect. I was just going to ask about your website. Now, are you big into the social media? Do you have a Facebook page and a Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff that sort of takes all our time? Oh, yes. <laughs> I um, uh, love social media. And um, and in fact, um, we do a, we started about a month ago, a, uh, a Friday afternoon tip sheet called Wine Speed. You can uh, sign up for it on KarenMcNeil.com every Friday afternoon. Complimentary, we'll send you some great wine tips and wine recommendations and wine advice for the weekend. Ah. And we've also started a new podcast called A Sense of Place Dash Wine, which you can... Uh, subscribe to on iTunes. Excellent. iTunes has got uh, a wealth of information, and it's so fun. Um, Speaking with Karen McNeil, the author of The Wine Bible, and she has a podcast. KarenMcNeil.com has all sorts of resources. And, of course, tis the holiday season. Get your autographed copy, your signed copy for yourself, really, (laughs) for sure. So get two, everybody. Um, You must have met almost everybody in the wine world. Is that about right? Can we say that? Do you know everybody? I, I feel like there's only a few degrees of separation. Whenever I meet someone I don't know, you know, or like, oh, oh, but you must know this person. Oh, yes, of course, this person. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a people business. And ultimately, um, you know, we find our ways to each other. And, uh, of course, we are all connected, and I have the pleasure of actually knowing Fred Dame, of course, and you know oh, Fred, Fred, I'm yes, sure. I know Fred well. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, Doug Frost, and, you know, these yeah. organizations, and it's, it's so exciting to see um, from the professional level how the sommelier um, position has uh, been embraced and been become part of um, the vernacular of restaurants again. I mean, people thought the sommelier was, you know, of course, the old test of and it's a little bit stuffy and poo-pooed you if you didn't spend $150 on a bottle of wine. But now, you know, there's so many young people who are engaging and in, in interested in wine that uh, they're really excited and they, they communicate it differently. That is so true. And America in particular is a hotbed of young professional sommeliers. Um, Jancis Robinson, the great English uh, wine critic, 
uh, recently wrote about this. Um, I, I've seen her a couple of times this year, and it was interesting. She said, you know, we, we have nothing like in the, in the U.K. and Britain, we have nothing like the excitement generated by young American sommeliers. Yeah, and it's really fun because as an advanced sommelier, um, I have two tasting groups a week, and and we're working with uh, the young, you know, the the young people who are expiring, and, and it's funny how they can retain so much knowledge, but yet there's still a little bit raw on the floor. And when you think about sommeliers, you you have to take care of the guest. Um, you know, when it comes to England, of course, the uh, Masters of Wine Institute is uh, was based and founded in England, as was the Court of Masters Sommeliers. Have you ever thought about working on that track, or is that something that uh, you know you've you ever aspired? To? Yeah, actually, in 1991, when the MW first came to the U.S., they came to New York and um, did a week-long um, sort of study class and an introduction for 150 people who were in. You had to be invited. Ah. Anyway, I was one of the 150 people invited, and at the end of the week, they gave us all a test to to see if we were you know, Aptitude, uh, able uh. to be in the program, and uh, 15 people passed, and I was one of those 15. Wow. But, that was, but in that same week, I got, uh, I, I uh, agreed with Workman to do a book, which I knew was going to ultimately be the Wine Bible, and so I took a leave of absence from the MW program uh, in order to write the Wine Bible. And then I took a second leave of absence 10 years later when my, because my daughter was going to be born. Oh. And finally I went back a couple of years ago and I said, you know, I, I really want to reapply. And the MW organization in London said, you have the wine Bible. You, you, don't, you already have an MW. Yeah, if, okay. if Moses was a woman, you would, it would be you in the world of wine. How fun. I was speaking with Karen McNeil, and we come back from this break. We're going to talk about how she tastes wine, some of the great wine regions of the world, and um, how you might be able to get her to come to one of your events and, and perhaps visit Taste Washington. So if you ever have any questions, um, check out KarenMcNeil.com. But if you want to talk about Happy Hour, send me a question to ask at HappyHourRadio.net. And for those of you who tweet, 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 uh, we are at Happy HR Radio. So stick around, folks. We'll be right back on 570 KVI. Hi, I'm Alicia Gellis with Waterbrook Winery, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Uh, well, ho, ho, ho. Happy Saturday night. It's Happy Hour Radio, and uh, I am super happy because I... Uh, well, I have the author of the Wine Bible, and how fitting tis the season with the holidays and the holy days. We have Karen McNeil, author, consultant, and uh, award-winning, um, well, wine person. Uh, Karen here is in San Francisco right now. We're chatting about her second edition of the Wine Bible, which is uh, a must-have if you want to learn about wine or if someone in your family and friend circles want to learn about wine, you have to go to KarenMcNeil.com and, and see if you can get an autographed copy um, sent just in time for... Uh, uh, that Santa day. So, Karen, um, when you go around tasting uh, to traveling to these regions, how do you sort of pick who you meet? 
You know, it's a uh, it's sort of a multi pronged process. I I usually um, sort of have heard from the underground, uh, in a sense, who who I need to talk to. And I, I love when I go to a region to see some of the the great kind of classic producers who helped establish that region, and then um, also visit some of the the new people who are uh, who are often kind of creating the 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 leading edge of what's happening in the region. So it it's different with every place, but I I definitely try to. Um, to sit down and really, I take lots of blank notebooks with me and um, uh, essentially write my little handoff for every day that I'm in a place. You must have a great team to work with to help you schedule these things, or or are you do it all? <laughs> you do it all. Um, you know, we my business, Karen McNeil and Company, is based in St. Helena in the heart of the Napa Valley. Uh-huh. And um, we have several people who, I have several people who work for me here, but we're still a pretty small um, business as businesses go. Okay. So um, you, we were talking off, off the air in about Washington State, and um, what's your impression of Washington State? I'm very high on Washington. I, I think um, Washington has... Uh, has quietly in the last 20 years um, just moved into uh, fabulous recognition, especially for its Cabernets, Merlots, and its Syrahs, of course, and, and Rhone blends, which I, I, it won't surprise me if 20 years from now um, Washington is known as, if you will, the sort of Rhone of the United States. Um, because it does so well with those great varieties, but I still love the structure um, of the of the cabs and the and the merlots. Um, I wish that I, I have had off and on great hopes for Riesling, mm-hmm. and my hopes my Riesling hopes are based also uh, on Washington, not on not on California. But I I don't think there are yet enough serious Riesling producers. There are a lot of very good, basic, every-night Riesling producers, but some really um, phenomenal Rieslings, uh, I think, uh, are, are still yet to be made. But if anybody's going to do that, it is going to be Washington. Uh, it's pretty exciting up here, and I've been in the business for about 15 years, and, and watching the industry grow and, and remembering the moment when uh, Washington graced the cover of the Wine Spectator magazine in 2005, and we were bestowed, uh, of course, they were talking about Syrah back then. Um, and it's interesting, when we think about the new world, of course, the old world, they focused basically on one grape. It's outside of the Rhone, of course, they had blends, but when you think about the Mosul and the Rheinhess, and they're talking about Riesling, and of course they had some you know, other whites, but that's how they got to be great for generations. And Washington is still young enough that we're, we're so excited about everything, we're going to try everything right now until we fall in love with something, and I think those winemakers will, will find that path of marriage with a, a one or two styles of wine. Yeah. Well, you know, there... I. I was very excited when Eroica Riesling was uh, was first released, the joint venture between Chateau Saint-Michel and Dr. Lozen of the Mosul, and I still think it's one of the best Rieslings in Washington State. I, of course, love the poetry uh, Riesling and, and the work, the viticultural work that Alan Shoup does with uh, with a whole 
you know, wonderful slate of experts from around the country and around the world. So I agree with you. I mean, I think that probably the best is yet to come. When you look at the world of wine, what are some of the trends you, uh, you're thinking about or you're seeing um, in, in your studies and, and travels? Um, I think that the um, we're in a period of... Uh, of doing the hard work of just getting better and better. You know, it, it's it's like a chef who all of a sudden just realizes that actually he or she can make a pretty good roast chicken, but now it's time to roast 5,000 of them <laughs> to, to, to kind of hammer out the difference between very good and perfect. And it takes a long time to move from very good to perfect. It's not all exciting, and it's not about trends. It's just doing the hard work of getting incrementally better and better and better. And I, I think the the um, unless you're talking about very newly developed places like China, that most other places are in that phase of doing the hard work as they move toward ever more perfect wines. It makes sense because every vintage is different and uh, you know that's that's what makes wine so exciting and of course the challenges for winemakers they face and uh, obviously with global warming and some of the droughts and uh, even here in Washington we've had cold and extremes uh, the hottest year just this last year and the coldest year just four years ago so it's it's really interesting and for China I mean I'm half Chinese, and so I always tease that the greatest uh, compliment is, uh, or the greatest flattery is imitation. In China, they can imitate anything, and so I think that's where they're starting. They're going to try to do what everyone else has done so that they can just sort of get into the mainstream. Yeah, you know, I was very surprised by the quality of the top wines in China. I was in Ningxia on the edge of the Gobi Desert in June, and I... I'm not sure what sort of expectation I had, but it wasn't uh, what I found. What I found was um, wines that were surprisingly structured and complex, wines that could have easily been in uh, a blind tasting of American or or um, Bordelais uh, Cabernets, and and not stood out as anything but either of those. I mean, it was it was mind blowing and eye opening. Well, that's uh, very exciting, but also quite daunting, knowing that China, again, with their um, their ability to to create, manufacture, and produce at a very very competitive level, um, look out for the rest of the world. Um, right. So. When the, are you doing a book tour um, for the second edition of the Wine Bible? I am. I have been uh, uh, out on on tour since uh, um, oct- the beginning of October when the sec- this new second edition was released. Um, alas, I don't have a plan right now to to come to Seattle, but I hope that I will fix that in in January and get up there. Well, I'm going to send you a personal invitation to join me in April for something really cool. Um, if you want to taste some wines. But when I was reading the second edition, you there was a, um, a, a couple sentences about Burgundy. And it's so funny how when you talked about how people begin their journey in wine, but somehow they all end up in Burgundy. It's the mothership, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was in Burgundy that the very idea of terroir, the idea that a wine is a reflection of a place, 
that idea that we all take for granted started in Burgundy, and it, of course, dominates as a conceptual idea every fine wine region in the world now. Um, so, yeah, med- much of our thinking about wine and much of our emotional connection to it began in Burgundy. And uh, that was, I spoke French in high school, and my first wine region I ever visited was in Burgundy. I fell in love with French food, French girls, and French wine. So I, when I read that, I was just smiling to myself heartily. Oh, you had it tough, huh, Chris? I, Yes, I've, I've been a little privileged in my world. And it's been a privilege to have Karen McNeil. Um, I'm a big fan, and I'm honored to have you here on the show. Uh, KarenMcNeil.com has a host of information. Of course, you can order the, the second edition of the Wine Bible. Um, it's a must-have, especially uh, for the holidays. Uh, don't be shy. Um, and, Karen, I'll look forward to chatting with you again here on Happy Hour Radio, and hopefully we'll see you in Washington sometime soon. Excellent, Chris. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, and cheers to Happy Hour Radio. Hey, folks, that's, that's Karen McNeil, and you can find all information again on KarenMcNeil.com, a wonderful woman. She's won so many great awards, uh, the James Beard Award for uh, Communicating in Wine, and, of course, the International Wine and Spirits Competition granted her with another um, award. She's, the, uh, I guess, the most awarded American woman um, on, in wine, which is very, very exciting and an honor for me. Um, so coming up next, we're going to chat about holiday gift ideas. And, of course, the Wine Bible 2nd Edition is at the top of the list. But I've got a couple other things in mind in store for you that uh, Santa would love to share with you and your family. So stick around, folks. If you have a question, remember, it's ask at happyhourradio.net. And our Twitter is at happyhrradio. We'll be right back on 570-KVI. Bruce Milligan with Tequila Celestial, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to 3. Talk Radio 570 KVI, want to know weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, all right. Hey, uh, ho, ho, ho. Welcome back. It's Saturday night uh, in the city of Seattle. It's Happy Hour Radio, and this is uh, segment four, so hope you have something really tasty in that glass. And, uh, well, you've got a couple weeks before the special holiday, and uh, if you're looking for gifts, of course, I'm going to tell you about all the gifts for adults. And, uh, of course, starting off with the Wine Bible, we just had the pleasure of having Karen McNeil, and that's a must-have. You should pick up the first edition for fun, but the second edition, uh, of course, is the newest and latest, and every vintage changes. So you can find that at KarenMcNeil.com. But I have a couple books here, and um, it's seldom that we have a chance to really relax and enjoy ourselves. And, and wintertime is when you light the fire, put some wine or, or brandy in that glass, and then um, sit down to a wonderful uh, little story. And some of the books, of course, uh, are factual and about information, and some are really stories. And I had uh, the pleasure of having a book sent to me called Tangled Vines. And um, this is written by a woman out in California, and um, her great 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 grandfather was one of the first California winemakers. Now he was a, a Jewish immigrant that came and started making wine but um, the story goes like this. There was a huge arson in California that in fact it was the largest loss of, uh, of wine in history. They lost $250 million of wine. This was a big warehouse that had 
all of the the library vintages of all the great wineries in California, Napa, and Sonoma. So this wasn't just one little winery. This is a story about a man who was a con man and got him his way uh, telling stories and drinking all these great wines and meeting these people and impressing them. But at the end of the day, he covered his foot tracks, his footsteps, by lighting a fire in this warehouse. And the book is called Tangled Vines. It's a great story about the history of winemaking in California. And we're talking about um, when the Spanish actually came to Mexico and, and started colonizing Mexico. And, of course, California and Texas were part of Mexico at the time. So this goes back to the, the early 1800s, and then it goes right up here to the 2000s, and I think the fire uh, took place in 2005. The book is called Tangled Vines, and uh, the author is the great-great-great-granddaughter of one of the first, actually the first person to make commercial wine. And the reason she wrote the book is because her grandfather's wine, or great-great-grandfather's wine, from 1870 was stored at that warehouse. So she had a, a personal interest and investment in understanding what happened to her heritage. So Tangled Vines, a great book. Um, but if you, uh, in fact, I've got uh, the pleasure of having Jean Shook, who is uh, the Seattle Gin Society. There's a book by Aaron Knoll, and this is called Gin. The Art and Craft of the Artisanal Revival. This has this is a book about 300 different versions of gin, and it's really, really cool. You get to learn about the history of gin and how it's made and, and why some of the botanicals were actually, um, well, were sourced and how gin movement has, is coming back. Classic cocktails that have always been around, but when you think about the classic spirits, gin was one of them, and uh, there's so many great recipes and great stories about some of the distilleries that are producing this gin. So this book is also entertaining. It's called Gin, the Art and Craft of the Artisan Revival. Um, you get to learn about gin distilleries, gin brands, and, um, well, you'll be a gin expert when you get to the to the back of this. Of course, it's got cocktails, great pictures, and more, and um, I'm really enjoying the book because gin is one of the things that I put off for a while because juniper wasn't my gig, but now you know, gin is uh, really exciting. And lastly, um, one of my favorite folks here in town, here in Seattle, is Madeline Puckett. And her book, Wine Folly, The Essential Guide to Wine, is uh, out. And it's really a must-read. It's it's a very um, exciting, colorful um interesting and approachable way to understand the world of wine. She's got little palettes of color. She's got little graphs, um, and I should say big graphs and little graphs, and uh, a great grasp on how to share and communicate the idea behind wine. She'll give you whole, a host of flavor profiles and pairings, and this is called Wine Folly, the essential guide to wine. If you go to winefolly.com, I'm sure you can ask for a signed copy for the holidays. So that's uh, four great books, of course, The Wine Bible, second edition from Karen McNeil, Tangled Vines, which is a story about the California arson, greed, murder, and obsession, the arson of the vineyards of California, and uh, Aaron Knoll's book, Gin, the Art and Craft of Artisan Revival. I've got these books. I'm really enjoying them, and uh, they're, they're super cool. I'm sure they'll be a great gift for yourself or for a friend and family member. So, folks, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been an honor to have Karen McNeil on this show, and I hope you're all feeling well. I think I need a little bit of whiskey here to help calm my 
my voice. Um, wish you the happy holidays. Uh, next week, I've got another great show, and I'm going to have um, so many. I've got Ethan Stoll coming up. We're going to talk about uh, the history of Parma de Prosciutto and uh, cocktail and author A.J. Rathbun here in Seattle. He's going to mix up some great cocktails. And, of course, I've got more gifts to help share with you, and I uh, hope you'll share with your friends Happy Hour Radio. Tell them about it. You can look us up online at happyhourradio.net for all the great shows and guests upcoming and past. And I wish you well. Have a great night. Remember, folks, life is always better with the designated driver. Cheers. Cheers.